0: This is a bonus episode of Get Ready for Sunday, a more or less weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. In the next few minutes, I will try to clear away some of the obstacles modern readers encounter when trying to extract the true richness and wisdom of scripture. Things like cultural differences, nuances in translation, and the entirely different world views between us today and the original audience for the scriptures in preparing these little reviews i do use published works of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators but fair warning all of this information is sifted through my own leaky tiny brain this episode will look at the readings for the third sunday of lent prescribed for parishes where men and women known as the elect are preparing to be baptized at the upcoming easter vigil in that circumstance the church stipulates that the mass readings for year a of the lectionary cycle are to be proclaimed on the third fourth and fifth sundays of lent even in years b and c if you hear these year a readings every year in your parish congratulations That indicates a parish is doing well in its most important mission, that is, consistently attracting more men and women to an encounter with the risen Christ through the gospel and the church. So, hooray for that. Why the same scripture every year when there are elect present in your parish? On these three Sundays, special community rites called the scrutinies are prayed over the elect. Diana McAllenthal, a recognized authority on the practice of adult baptisms, explains that, first, the three year A gospel stories, the woman at the well, the man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus, are essential to the scrutiny prayers, which are crafted with those readings in mind. Second, biblical scholars have consistently found, in manuscripts from as early as the 7th century, this particular set and order of readings have been closely tied to baptismal preparation. And third, the progression of these readings thematically reflects conversion from no faith to total faith, even when facing death. As always, you can find the day's scripture readings on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website, usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. For all three of these Sundays, there will be options. Choose the readings for Year A. The first reading comes from the book of Exodus. The scene is the great caravan of the Jewish people in the desert, early in what would be their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. The common theme we find in all today's scripture is thirst, human thirst for something, whether physical or spiritual. Here is the day's reading from the book of Exodus. In those days, in their thirst for water, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, Why did you ever make us leave Egypt? Was it just to have us die here of thirst, with our children and our livestock? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people, a little more, and they will stone me? The Lord answered Moses, go over there in front of the people along with some of the elders of israel holding in your hand as you go the staff with which you struck the river i will be standing there in front of you on the rock in horeb strike the rock and the water will flow from it for the people to drink this moses did in the presence of the elders of israel the place was called Massa, and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled there and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord in our midst or not? I am calling this a caravan because it was a genuinely enormous crowd. Earlier in Exodus, we are told that the group included 600,000 adult males. That's generally understood to be men between the ages of 20 and 60. Some have extrapolated from that an estimate of 3 million persons in total. It's no wonder Moses felt intimidated by their complaining. 3 million to 1 is long odds. Let's take as the primary point of the story God's overall graciousness and protection of this people. In the Exodus account, God has already provided the food for the journey in the form of the manna appearing on the ground and the birds dropping from the sky. If we read a bit more carefully, we find a number of themes and subplots also in this passage. For instance, we're used to reading of the Israelites being tested by God. Here we also see the Israelites testing God. Their complaints are directed toward Moses, but the real, if unspoken, impatience or dissatisfaction is toward God's movement in their lives. Moses' role as mediator is strongly demonstrated, but he is just that, the mediator between God and the people. Both these instances of testing, God testing the people and the people testing God, were common teaching points at the time. Moses is the mediator and the leader of the people. He has led, and they have followed, out of Egypt toward a new existence. His role as leader is reinforced by God's instruction to use his staff as the instrument of miraculously answering the current complaint about water the staff of moses is the symbol of his anointed leadership it has already contributed remarkably to their deliverance in defeating the priests of the egyptian gods and in parting the sea with this event both god's generous provision and the leadership role of moses are reinforced in the eyes of the people I recently read one Jewish scholar who noted that by understanding the nuances of the Hebrew used to record this event, it becomes clear that the people brought forward this complaint about the water supply well before there was an actual water shortage. The mob's rage was anticipating the problem, not reacting to its presence. The historical significance of this incident for the Jewish people is indicated by the place names used here, Massa, which translates to test, and Meribah, which translates to contention or dissatisfaction. One last aspect of note here, there is an unlabeled but nonetheless significant demonstration of God's mercy present here, I think. I'm not referring to the water supply but to this. There is no mention of any negative consequences being brought upon the people for their apparent lack of faith in bringing this apparently premature complaint forward. Now let me take a very brief look at the responsorial at this Mass which is taken from Psalm 95. First we need to place this in time relative to the scene in the first reading. It is from and for a community well after the end of the forty years' wandering. Looking at the text, we see multiple invitations to prayer, suggesting that this is part of a liturgical rite, a public prayer, perhaps in the Jerusalem temple. The psalmist then calls on those present to be open to God's grace. And finally, he offers a prophetic instruction from God that names the incident at Massa and Meribah. This might be paraphrased something like this. Your ancestors had seen me do great works for them, yet they still complained and demanded more signs. Don't be that way. Be open and listen to me. Here is the responsorial psalm. With the refrain only at the beginning and the end. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Come, let us sing joyfully to the Lord. Let us acclaim the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us joyfully sing psalms to him. Come, let us bow down in worship let us kneel before the lord who made us for he is our god and we are the people he shepherds the flock he guides oh that today you would hear his voice harden not your hearts as at meribah as in the day of massa in the desert where your fathers tempted me they tested me though they had seen my works If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Picking up the second reading, it comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. We could easily get distracted by a phrase that often triggers debate between Protestants and Catholics, or at least reminds us that there has been some disagreement about this. And that phrase is... We have been justified by faith. I know I can't completely represent centuries of debate in a few words, so here's an incomplete and admittedly imperfect try. Anyway, it's important at the beginning to define the term justified. Here it refers to the state of being in right relationship with and acceptable to God. One of the foundational understandings of Reformed Protestantism or Lutheranism is, in Latin, sola fide, meaning one is justified, made right with God, by faith alone. The implication of that is that the believer acts, professes faith, and thus is justified the position of the catholic and orthodox churches has been and continues to be that justification is a gift from god that with the cooperation of the recipient initiates transformation into the risen state john henry cardinal newman wrote of the gift of justification as being one and the same as the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here St. Paul is telling the Romans that they have not justified themselves, they cannot justify themselves, it is a divine gift enabled by the self-sacrifice of Jesus. Paul ends this passage with the theme of hope, a hope that does not disappoint. Among other things, he is telling the Romans he is not using hope as a synonym for wish. Christian hope has a quality of confidence about it, confidence that the hope will be fulfilled. As humanity thirsts for its right relationship with God, Paul describes that love as so abundant that it pours into our hearts by way of the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This great hope is further strengthened by recalling that Jesus entered into his great self-sacrifice while sin still ruled most human hearts. He undertook this completely selfless act, despite the past and future infidelity of his elect. Here is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And hope does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us for christ while we were still helpless died at the appointed time for the ungodly indeed only with difficulty does one die for a just person though perhaps for a good person one might even find courage to die but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You might take a moment after hearing the gospel story that follows to reread this Pauline passage and see if you recognize the Samaritan woman as justified following her encounter with Jesus. Now we come to the Gospel of the day. It's a much longer passage than is usual for Sunday Masses. There is a shorter option available to the presider or preacher, but even the short version is unusually long compared to the norm. So as not to overtax our memories, I will interject comments as I read the full text. This will be interlinear commentary. I will attempt to make it obvious which are my words and which were written by John. This then is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. The names Jacob and Joseph should sound familiar. They were Jews whose stories are in the book of Genesis. Joseph was Jacob's favorite and the youngest of his 12 sons. There is a deep, ancient connection between Samaritans and Jews. The exact time and cause of their separation from each other remains the subject of scholarly research and debate. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? for Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus is doing two very scandalous things here. First, he is alone with and talking to a woman not of his household. Second, the enmity between Jews and Samaritans is also deep and ancient. That Jesus was traveling through Samaria instead of going around it, was itself extremely unconventional. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now we're getting into the first of three major sections of this story. This conversation about water and living water is the first. Jesus is the one who first asks for water, but will be the one who supplies it. Describing it as gift of God and living water lets us know that there is something of great value here. Living water then most often meant water that was flowing, especially from a bubbling spring instead of being still and the word translated here as gift was used almost exclusively to describe some great god-given bounty the woman said to him sir you do not even have a bucket and the cistern is deep where then can you get this living water are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Aha! It's called Jacob's Well, but it is, in fact, a cistern. That's an underground cavern or tank used to hold water brought from somewhere else. There is no actual well at that location. This was still water the woman's challenge to jesus are you greater than jacob betrays some of the deep animosity between the two peoples jesus answered and said to her everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water i shall give will never thirst The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus asserts the salvific nature of what he offers. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. This section isn't really one of the important three parts of the discussion. I've heard some preachers use it as an excuse to impugn the woman, which I think is unjustified. I'll only point out that despite her apparent instability in relationships, Jesus says nothing negative to her. He does not condemn nor censure her. JESUS ACCEPTS HER AS A WORTHY CONVERSATION PARTNER AND TAKES HER QUESTIONS SERIOUSLY. THE WOMAN SAID TO HIM, SIR, I CAN SEE THAT YOU ARE A PROPHET. OUR ANCESTORS WORSHIPPED ON THIS MOUNTAIN, BUT YOU PEOPLE SAY THAT THE PLACE TO WORSHIP IS IN JERUSALEM. JESUS SAID TO HER, BELIEVE ME, WOMAN, The hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand, because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth and indeed the Father seeks such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Here is the second of the three significant story elements, the discussion about correct worship. The woman brings up the old argument about the appropriate location for worship, Jesus assures her that that argument is of no consequence with the new understanding of God's nature that his life brings to all, that his life represents. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he the one speaking with you. Now Jesus self-identifies, but does so quite humbly. I see this as, among other things, another sign of him taking this woman as deserving of his respect. At that moment his disciples returned, and were amazed that he was talking with a woman, but still no one said, What are you looking for, or why are you talking with her? THE DISCIPLES ARE STUCK ON THAT VERY SHALLOW LEVEL OF CONCERN OVER SOCIAL CUSTOMS BEING VIOLATED. THE WOMAN LEFT HER WATER JAR AND WENT INTO THE TOWN AND SAID TO THE PEOPLE, COME SEE A MAN WHO TOLD ME EVERYTHING I HAVE DONE. COULD HE POSSIBLY BE THE CHRIST? SOMETHING BIG HAS CHANGED. SHE LEAVES HER WATER JAR. Her initial physical needs are subordinated to her dawning awareness of some great spiritual gift being present to her. She feels compelled to share the gift rather than to hoard it. From here until the end of the passage, we read of Jesus trying to bring his disciples to a better understanding of what is happening, and finally get to the third major story element of The acceptance of Jesus by the Samaritan townspeople. He is early in his public ministry, in a place he shouldn't be, and among people who would be expected to instantly reject him. But he is not chased away. He is invited in. He is warmly embraced. They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving payment and gathering crops for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified, that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. MANY OF THE SAMARITANS OF THAT TOWN BEGAN TO BELIEVE IN HIM BECAUSE OF THE WORD OF THE WOMAN WHO TESTIFIED, HE TOLD ME EVERYTHING I HAVE DONE. WHEN THE SAMARITANS CAME TO HIM, THEY INVITED HIM TO STAY WITH THEM, AND HE STAYED THERE TWO DAYS. MANY MORE BEGAN TO BELIEVE IN HIM BECAUSE OF HIS WORD. AND THEY SAID TO THE WOMAN, WE NO LONGER BELIEVE BECAUSE OF YOUR WORD, FOR WE HAVE HEARD FOR OURSELVES and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. If you hear these readings at Mass this Sunday, rejoice that there are new Christians coming into your community, and pray for them as they finish their journey. Pray for their catechists and their sponsors as well. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona, Thanks for clicking in. I hope you find this time worthwhile. And may you see God's blessing in your life every day.